0: My point is celebrate diversity. It's that an efficient and equitable transportation system must be diverse and respond to diverse user demands. So if anybody wants to bicycle or walk, that we provide the resources to make that convenient and fun, and that we're willing to spend at least as much uh of road space and money on a walking or bicycling trip as we do to accommodate a car trip
1: hi everyone you've tuned in to the active towns podcast conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities i'm john simmerman founder of the active towns initiative and your humble host during this journey It's always so wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. And in this, our 33rd episode, I'm delighted to share my in-depth discussion on all things transportation and land use with Todd Littman of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. It's a long one, so I'm going to keep this intro short, but before we get started... I do need to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors. Thank you all so very much. Later I'll share how you too can help support our efforts to create safer, more inviting all ages and abilities environments that promote a culture of activity. Okay, as promised, let's get right to the action with Todd Lippman. I am absolutely delighted to welcome into the Active Towns podcast, Todd Littman. Todd, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, thank you very much.
1: So Todd, you are the founder and executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. That's an independent research organization dedicated to developing innovative solutions to transport problems. Dive into that, tell us what that's all about.
0: Sure, well, In my younger days, I was a bicycle advocate and worked for a short time as a lobbyist for a state bicycle organization in Washington state. And that got me interested in this question. Uh, If I'm talking with public officials, either transportation engineers or planners or city officials or state representatives, how can I convey that bicycling deserves to be recognized as a legitimate form of transportation and receive the same sort of support that is spent to accommodate automobile travel motor vehicle travel so this was this was almost 40 years ago and that was actually a radical idea that active transportation walking and bicycling should be recognized as having equal importance as motor vehicle travel. So that motivated me. I already had an undergraduate degree. That motivated me to go back and work on a master's degree. Technically, my master's is a master's of environmental su- studies, which is a very general concept. And my specialty, while my most of my colleagues were interested in the natural environment, my interest was in the built environment, the, the fancy word for saying urban conditions or or where we live. And so my research was focused on how to apply comprehensive economic analysis to what started off as bicycling, but very quickly, I generalized it and I asked, what are the full costs of different forms of transportation? And therefore, what are the potential benefits if we can get people to rely less on driving, which turns out to be a very expensive form of transportation and shift to what, depending on the context, I will either call the resource efficient modes or the affordable modes or the healthy modes or the sustainable modes or the green modes, which include walking and bicycling and public transit. And then of course that leads to this very interesting question because it turns out that Land use is the inverse or the the land use pattern that you have, where you live, and what your community looks like affects your travel decisions as much as the physical modes that are available. So it propelled me into working on subjects like smart growth, new urbanism, and interestingly enough, parking. Parking management, which is the, the real intersection between transportation, or one of the main intersections between transportation and land use. We say that parking is the dark matter of the urban universe. It affects everything else that goes on, but is so, it's virtually invisible to most people. So most people assume that parking, they, they think of parking as a problem when they can't get it. But otherwise it's just something that is incorporated into buildings. So one of the areas that I've done a lot of research on and actually wrote a book on the subject and it's been a big part of my consulting practice is the looking at ways to manage parking, use parking more efficiently so we get more value from each parking space. So fewer parking spaces are needed to serve our needs. And also parking becomes a huge lever for changing travel behavior and land use patterns and increasing affordability. So anyway, getting back, uh, I was lucky enough to get started working on my master's degree. I started getting consulting work even while before I was completed. And that uh, propelled me into establishing myself as a consultant and establishing the Victoria Transport Policy Institute and I was I've been very lucky I've been able to support a family so my advice to young people that want to get started in a career in planning is find the issues that you're passionate about and that are the emerging issues there's always some emerging issues and if you can become the local expert on that subject you can become well I won't quite say rich and famous but you can be successful and proud.
1: Fantastic, well, you're certainly uh, famous in, in our, uh, our crowd. And just to be clear, um, since this uh, podcast does get picked up all around the world, uh, Victoria, we are referring to Victoria, BC. So he is up in Canada in, uh, in the province of uh, British Columbia. And it's been three years since you and I last saw each other in person. You were gracious enough to lead a tour for the Congress for New Urbanism. I think it was CNU twenty-five that year. And what a delightful ride it was to explore Victoria and and look at. And you 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 did a wonderful job on that uh, on that tour. And I produced a film for the for the tour. And you covered a lot of these types of issues in that tour. So talk a little bit about your hometown and how it's it's all interwoven with the work that you're doing.
0: Sure. Well, first, let me give some context. I actually grew up in Southern California, one of the suburbs of Los Angeles, Whittier. So I've experienced a wide range of, I'll use the term again, built environments of places, communities to live in. Uh, and if there are a couple of things I'll emphasize, and one is that I think even though I, do, I am lucky enough to live in a very nice city, Victoria, British Columbia, that the quality of experience that people have in their community depends far more on what they put in than the city itself. So I think I could be happy living in pretty much any community that does have the basic roots of walkability. That is, to me, that is the key. Now, Victoria happens to be an interesting case study because it was founded in the middle of the 19th century. So it started about it started growing about in the late 1850s. And uh, so the the neighborhood I live in, the the area close to the to the downtown, has the classic urban bones, the classic urban structure that developed pretty much before any, most communities that were built before 1950 are multi They have compact development with a good grid of streets, sidewalks on all the streets. The streets aren't too wide to make it difficult to cross. You have a strong a commercial center, whether it's called uh, a downtown or a shopping street or high street or whatever you call it, you have an area, a commercial district where people, where most of the things people want, most of the activities and services people want each week are available within convenient walking distance or at worst, a short transit ride. So if you have those attributes, it is possible to live a happy and healthy and wise life. Really doesn't matter whether that is a new urbanist, districts that are being built in some suburbs or a classic uh, small town, Uh, think of Mayberry RFD, you know, the, the kind of small town that people romanticize or a neighborhood in a big city. Those all can function efficiently offering people the features that you need to be able to drive less, to minimize your automobile travel and rely on the efficient, what, what I'll you know we, we'll call uh, now the resource efficient forms of transportation. So I'm lucky enough to have a house uh, near downtown Victoria. So, and I do work at home and we're a car-free family. We've been so for the last decade. And so I'm in this wonderful situation where I'm always looking for an excuse to get out of the house and go for a walk. And I've got a dozen really nice pubs and three nice grocery stores and countless restaurants and parks and all those things within a 10 minute walk of where we live. I should mention one of my definitions of a sustainable community is one where everybody has a nice pub within convenient walking distance of their home. Now, why is it? Why is it so important that people be able to walk to a pub?
1: I know. Yes. You told, because you told us.
0: Yes. So what are some of the, what are, if, if everybody has lots of has at least one, but preferably a few pubs within walking distance of their home, what, is, what does the community gain?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it gains a great deal of connectivity, sociability, and also safety. Exactly, and health. And health, absolutely. And
0: if instead of driving to the pub, I am able to walk, I'm reducing traffic congestion and parking needs, And very importantly, I'm burning off some calories so I can drink more. So if I enjoy good food or drink, there's this very positive feedback cycle. If I can be sure that when I go to a pub or a restaurant you know, or whatever other uh, social gathering I'm going to, that for the most part, for normal events, social event, that I get there and importantly get home without having to drive.
1: Yeah and as I recall from uh, your tour you took us to one of your favorite pubs and and uh, as as I'm visualizing this this place and I think I've got a a small clip of it in the video it is also a neighborhood sort of uh, situation is that correct
0: Bingo that is exactly what we're here to talk about because a very efficient classic development style is that neighborhoods have a commercial district where you have a mix of stores and service centers, you know, your your pharmacy and your dentists and your physician, and probably a, a daycare center, and maybe even the local police station and Could even be the city offices are there in storefronts. And above the storefronts, you have one or two or three stories of residential. Maybe a mix of residential and office. It is extremely efficient. And uh, research I've done and what other people have done suggests that if we can have, say, between 20 and 40% of your housing being. Uh, multifamily in a community. So, for example, you have those commercial districts with apartments on the second and third floor. You're achieving the density that you need in a very affordable way. Those, if we do it right, that housing can be very affordable. It's the type of housing that, let's say, a university student or an artist who's, or before they become famous and rich, or a senior who's downsizing, or anybody who needs to lead an affordable lifestyle, they will live in that uh, apartment above a grocery store or the apartment above a pharmacy or whatever. And in doing that, they are right in the center of things. They are right within walking distance of pretty much everything they need, and hopefully that district does include some nice restaurants and cafes, and that pub. So that is that is the ideal, and it existed. That was almost universal. You you know when next time you're visiting a let's say an Italian hill town, or or that small town that built that developed around a train station in. Ohio or or whatever, you know, the, the classic neighborhoods that were built before 1950. Oh, I should mention that uh, nice little district that you visited that we talked about when you were in Victoria. That district was created because it was one of the stops when Victoria had a trolley system. So the trolley system that existed between say 1880 and say 1950 in a lot of towns, including Victoria, those trolleys were the kernel. They planted a seed for that commercial district, that walkable neighborhood center that we still enjoy today. So uh, now we have to think about it, at that time, the, the, the trolley system would be built and the, the trolley stops would just naturally become the commercial district. And when somebody built a commercial building, uh, maybe they had a grocery store or a pharmacy or whatever, they would just naturally build some apartments, one or two apartments above the building. Uh, when they first got it started, that grocer or that pharmacist might live there with, with her or his family. But over time, they get wealthy enough, they move out to a single family house, and that little apartment now becomes where a student or a senior or a person with disabilities can live. It's a wonderful system. And what does it do? What is the real, you know, from our purposes, what is the attribute of it? It minimizes the need for mobility. It means that pretty much everything you need on a day to day basis you can get without having to get in a car. In fact, most of it you get by walking.
1: In actuality, there's enhanced mobility choice. You can choose to walk. You can choose to bike. You can choose to jump on transit. There's more options available, hopefully, to be able to meet your daily needs. So your options are actually increased.
0: Right. Well, it's absolutely true. We often... In this discussion of the built environment and how it affects transportation, we often talk about it in terms of transit-oriented development, that the neighborhoods that have frequent transit service, either a subway or some sort of a train station in the center or a bus line with frequent service, let's say um, at least three buses an hour going to uh, other major districts. If you have that, uh, we can call it transit-oriented development. And it's true that, that that gives you, think of it this way, walking and bicycling give you very good local access. So you can, as long as you're staying in your neighborhood, in the local area, uh, you can do, you can, You. you for most of us, uh, all you need is walking and bicycling. But once you need regional access, that is, once you need to go outside of your neighborhood, then public transit can provide a very high level of accessibility or, as you say, mobility. Now, currently, I am de-emphasizing transit-oriented development. And instead, I use the term walkable urban neighborhood, partly because during this pandemic, a a lot of people are going to be concerned or are concerned about using public transportation. Now, I should mention that the research actually shows that the the, the real transit oriented neighborhoods are actually experiencing lower rates of, of COVID infection and deaths than more automobile dependent suburbs. And if anybody's interested, they can see the research I've done. Uh, there's a, and um, uh, summarizing the research other people have done in my Planet Isn't blog called Lessons from Pandemics, uh, Transportation Risks and Safety Strategies, or go to our website and there's there's more comprehensive report. So, Victoria Transport Policy Institute, vtpi.org, and a report on pandemic resilient community planning. But regardless, I do think it is useful for those of us that are interested in smart growth and affordable housing and new urbanism and all those, to shift the emphasis from public transit to walkability. Because there are lots of situations, uh, think of a small town, where public transit is not gonna play a major role. Public transit can, under certain circumstances, provide a terrific lever, it's a catalyst, for creating those walkable transit-oriented nodes, but it's not essential that it is perfectly possible to achieve most of your sustainable transportation or you could say affordable or healthy transportation goals by emphasizing walking and bicycling and moderate, let's say twice to four times an hour transit, but not not requiring transit. So I think for our purposes, it's important to talk more about walkability with transit support than to fit, than to talk about transit-oriented development with a little bit of walkability thrown in.
1: Hearing you talk, it makes me sort of wonder if in looking at your name, the Victoria Transport Policy Institute, we, we've spent a great deal of time already talking about urban design and the, the built environment, and the, it seems as if it's, it's even less about transport policy and more about how we are building and planning our cities.
0: Absolutely. There are two sides of the same coin. So as soon as somebody, as soon as, a, let's say, as soon as an individual decides they're going to lead an automobile-dependent lifestyle, or as soon as a community decides that it's going to do automobile-oriented planning, then you drive a particular land-use development pattern, uh, in part because you require a whole bunch of parking at each destination, which limits density, and in part because your streets now become stinky and noisy and unpleasant For walking, and in part because people can now take all those trips. And especially during the last, let's say, half century, or let's say the last 70 years, the suburbanization was really driven a lot by racism and classism. And so you had these code words people, the term urban was a code word for. Minority, uh, ghetto, uh, dangerous environments and suburban drop the ability to move out to an urban fringe was very desirable. People talked about the environment, but what they were really what I think was actually more powerful was the idea that they were going to be able to move away from poor people and move to a more exclusive middle-class, you know, the the automobile trip, the fact that you couldn't get to the suburbs easily without a car became a moat that protected those neighborhoods from poor people. So there's a whole mixture of factors that all created the self-reinforcing cycle of automobile dependency and sprawl. Of course, part of it was the very real benefits of being able to hop in a car and go someplace and be able to think regionally. It may, if, if you don't own a car and I'm speaking from personal experience, your, your focus is on your neighborhood. So most of what you're gonna do, most of your daily interactions are gonna be in your neighborhood. Uh, once you get the car, your scale, your geographic scale, booms out into your region. So it becomes no problem to go drive across town, to go to the big box store, to save maybe five or $10 on on a shopping experience. You're suddenly regional and your activities and your friends and your sports events and your shopping and all, and your job searches, those are all becoming regional. Okay, so there are real benefits. But there's no question, it's that in doing that, that opportunity to live a regional lifestyle, to a certain degree, forces that automobile-dependent sprawled regional lifestyle. You know, I could cite many examples, but just a couple are that um, many in, in suburban areas, many of your key destinations, so for example, elementary schools or your courthouse or your parks and recreation centers, they're almost inaccessible without a car. They're easy to access with a car, or at least you know fairly straightforward, but they are very difficult to get to without a car. So under those circumstances, if I lived in that area, if I had if I had moved to an automobile dependent area, I would certainly be very aware of the huge benefits of having my own personal car, and the benefits of wider roads and abundant parking at every destination. It forces all of those to occur. Now I'm not against, I'm not saying it's bad, but what we can demonstrate very objectively is that it is extremely expensive, it is costly, for every adult to own their car and be expected to drive 10,000 miles a year or more and expect to have, in urban areas, we have, there are a number of studies that look at the number of parking spaces uh, in various locations and in urban areas, it's two to four off street parking spaces per vehicle. And in suburban areas, It's four to eight, and sometimes we have more than 10 parking spaces, off-street parking spaces per car. Huge costs, huge financial costs, huge environmental costs, huge uglification costs of all those parking spaces. That's a cost. And then you also have increased accident costs, um, air pollution costs, uh, loss of or, and, and, and very importantly, you know, if we're gonna bring in social equity issues, a huge reduction in the independent mobility of non-drivers, and therefore, then motorists have to spend, a, a, motorists in many families must spend a lot of time chauffeuring the non-drivers that are dependent upon them. And so it makes it, you know, there are there are a lot of costs. Okay, I always like to flip things into a more positive statement. So an- another way to phrase this is by creating more compact, mixed, multimodal communities, we can provide very large economic, social, and environmental benefits, savings and benefits. And my, a lot of my research is looking at how to define and quantify those So I'm not not saying that living a suburban lifestyle is bad, but I certainly think it's important that people have the option of living a less automobile-dependent lifestyle if they want. And in fact, I think an awful lot of people would prefer that lifestyle if it was more available and more affordable. So a lot of my work right now is looking at the nuts and bolts, the practical ways to allow more people, particularly people with low incomes and disabilities or other constraints on their ability to drive, allowing more people to live in walkable urban neighborhoods where it's easy to get around without needing to drive.
1: turn, Todd talks about future trends, emerging technologies, and preferences for more walkable and bikeable communities. But first, let me pause to highlight the ways you can help support the Active Towns initiative and this podcast. As a donor-backed 501c3 nonprofit, it's your generous contributions that offset the costs associated with creating this content. We're currently running an Active Towns t-shirt fundraising campaign, which concludes next week on the 28th. So don't miss out on this opportunity to get one of our limited edition Culture of Activity t-shirts. And by the way, we also have Active Towns hats and face coverings available as special benefits for our donors. For more information, the links will be provided in the show notes, or just click on the donate button at our website, which is at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's dive back into the discussion with Todd Littman. So Todd, you just mentioned something about the availability of more affordable places for people to live in and that having that choice, having that option, but you also mentioned something that it is something that we've seen is that Unlike past generations, we're starting to see with the, the younger generations that are coming into the workforce, they, they don't want the same things. They want a more vibrant downtown, less car-centric lifestyle. So there's, there's a sh- bit of a shifting that's going on. Is that what you're seeing in your research? Well,
0: yes, that is a popular narrative that does seem to have some basis. And from a, let's say a research perspective, the, the question, the part of the big question is, is that a cohort or a life cycle phase? That is, if we find that young people, uh, people, uh, let's call them millennials or whatever, are preferring a left, automobile-dependent lifestyle, and are less likely to get a driver's license and less likely to own a car, and have a preference for spending their money on their mobile phones and their computers than spending it on cars, if we see that, the question is, will that totally disappear as they grow older? Or is there something that's going to lock in? And the research is pretty good that it's halfway in between. It's, uh, there is there are reasons to think that part of it is that young people, for example, are facing more obstacles to getting their driver's license. so there is, is graduated licenses make it much more difficult to get your driver's license at age 17 or 18. When I was I turned 16, I had a driver's license within a couple months. That is no longer easy. It's not, no longer possible, in fact, to get the full driver's license at 16 in, most, in many jurisdictions. And then a lot of young people are, a uh, much greater portion of young people are at, at college or university. They're doing exactly what us old people told them to do, which is get a good education as a starting point for your career. And uh, so the portion of young people who are in, in college or university is greater and uh, also young people are, are seeing fewer uh, economic opportunities. So all of those are, you can say, conspiring to make it a little bit more difficult to uh, lead an automobile dependent lifestyle. I think now there's, there's been a shift in attitude and part of it is that other technologies, mobile phones, computers, computer games, access to the internet, That's how people, that's how young people interact with new emerging technology. So there's much more excitement about, let's say, an iPhone than there is for most, for for a lot of people. Let's say a lot of people are much more excited about the emerging uh, mobile phone technology than they are about emerging cars. So there is a shift. But I want to emphasize it's not just young people and it is not just generational. There's very good research, the National Association of Home Builders. Uh, every so often, does uh, uh, does a series of surveys asking people what type of home and what type of neighborhood they prefer. If you simply ask, do you want? Would you prefer to live in a single-family house in a suburb or an apartment in an urban center?" 80% of people say, "I prefer a single-family house." But if you force the issue, if you force the, the respondent, the survey respondent, to act, to make a li- a logical trade-off. A, 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 a real trade off. And you ask, would you prefer a single family house if it requires a long commute and is in an automobile dependent neighborhood? Or would you be willing to accept a compact housing type, which could be a townhouse or an apartment in a walkable urban neighborhood? What's really interesting is over the last decade, the portion of how of respondents of survey respondents these are middle class people you randomly selected middle class families that are that are ready to search for a house it used to be that a minority would choose the 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 compact housing type and the majority would choose the single family house in an automobile dependent location and over the last decade that has flipped and so now a majority of households would give up a single family house and instead choose, let's say a townhouse or a low-rise apartment or maybe a high-rise apartment, if that allowed them to live in a walkable urban neighborhood. And if we if if cities, if communities reformed their development policies, so you had a lot more so so the the prices of housing reflected the true development costs. So we allowed higher densities. We we allowed people to build townhouses and low rise apartments in what are currently single family housing only neighborhoods. And we made parking optional rather than mandatory. So we eliminated parking minimums. And we did a few other things that you could say corrected for the current uh, development distortions that favor sprawl and automobile dependency. And we allowed developers to build a whole bunch of medium price housing, compact walkable neighborhoods. So you would have a whole bunch of new townhouses and low rise apartments in those nice old walkable neighborhoods. And so it was cheaper. Let's say you could easily find a $200,000 townhouse or apartment or condo in a walkable urban neighborhood where a single-family house of the same size, same internal size, would be three hundred thousand dollars, reflecting the additional costs of the parking garage and the additional costs of the infrastructure that needs to be built there. If you did that, so the so the so the smart growth, the new urbanist house was actually cheaper, as it should be, than the suburban automobile-dependent house. Then I think the 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 trend toward the preference for more compact housing types would go way, way up. What the research indicates is that there is an awful lot of latent demand for appropriate housing in walkable urban neighborhoods.
1: Great transition because let's let's talk a little bit about this article that you wrote that won uh, an award recently and the, the name of the article is The Future is Not What It Used to Be, Changing Travel Demands and Their Implications for Transport Planning. So my question to you, Todd, is, is where is my rocket belt?
0: Exactly. So one of the fun things I, I did in that article was to go back to the, you could say, the science fiction literature, the predictions that were made uh, 50 years ago. About what our transportation system was going to look like in the 21st century. Now I'm old enough to remember when the 21st century was this future, exciting future that was being predicted. And it's fun to go back to the literature and see how well that was predicted. You know how well the predictions came true. And of course, uh, what you saw, what you see if you look at what what we were supposed to be doing now is we would have rocket belts and uh, maglev cars and flying cars. Uh, when the traffic congestion got severe, you just unfold the wings and take off your from the highway. And the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, which came out in 1968, predicted that by 2001, which 19 years ago, that anybody could fly to the moon on a Pan Am spaceship. One very interesting detail is that between 1976 and 2003, anybody could go flying supersonic. If you were willing to pay the huge price premium to fly on the Concorde service that existed between uh, London and New York or Paris in New York. So if you were willing to pay what's the equivalent of about 25000 dollars one way you know in current dollars it was it was about fifteen thousand dollars then but now it's you know the equivalent the current equivalent would be about twenty five thousand dollars. you would save three hours on the flight. yeah was that was that worth it? Well not. Not, not, not enough people were willing to pay that huge premium. It was not cost-effective. So, despite huge subsidies spent by the French and British government to build this thing called a supersonic commercial jetline liner, there just was no business case for it. And I think that is that's a kind of interesting symbol of what happened during the 20th century there was so much enthusiasm for speed the emphasis of transportation planning was all about increasing speed and so wider highways faster cars maglev trains supersonic jets that was the that was the exciting emphasis and now i think We've grown smarter, or at least we've realized the, that speed is not the only planning goal. That, yes, speed does provide benefits. So if you can go from walking to bicycling and, you know, increase your speed from three miles an hour to, say, 10, you gain a lot. If you can have a bus that isn't stuck in traffic congestion, if you can have reliable, uncongested automobile travel, those do provide benefits, But if you ask people, are you willing to pay? For example, on a few uh, highways, motorists have a choice between being stuck in the general traffic lane and facing some congestion or paying extra for the toll lane. It turns out only about 20% of motorists are willing to pay anywhere near what it costs to build that lane. So the price, so they're not even repaying the full cost of that special lane, even a modest price, uh, even testing people's willingness to pay using a fairly modest price, it turns out most people would rather save money than time. And that shows up in lots of different ways. What's interesting is that I think real estate professionals have failed to be able to convey this well when they're selling houses. So if I was a real estate professional, I would find the houses that are in the, I would find housing options toward the center of town. And I would promote that this is the time efficient lifestyle. Even if you do need to drive when you're going to work, even if your job is, let's say, out in a shopping mall in the suburbs or or an industrial plant out of town, you save a huge amount of time on all those other trips what turn out to be 80% of your daily trips are running errands and helping your kids get to school and and chauffeuring people and all that and if you live in a walkable urban neighborhood you and so even when you do need to drive let's say to a to a store it's a 5 minute drive to a store that's a mile and a half away rather than a 20 minute drive on a congested highway from one suburb to another, by doing that, I think there's a huge amount, huge preference for that more accessible, cost-effective lifestyle. But the real estate industry hasn't heard this yet. So one of the reports I wrote that's available free on our website is called Selling Smart Growth. And it talks about how if we want to appeal to households, pure self-interest. We're not saying move out, move uh, to a a walkable urban neighborhood with a reduced, uh, with a less automobile-dependent lifestyle for the good of the environment. We're not saying we're going to do it, you know, uh, out of the goodness of your heart. No, it's the rational, smart thing to do if you want to save money, save time, live a healthier, safer lifestyle, and just actually get to know your neighbors. And we all like living uh, in a place where the automobile travel is tamed. I'm not saying everybody should lead a car-free lifestyle, but we're far better off leading a multimodal lifestyle where we only drive when it's necessary.
1: So, I noticed that, you know, sort of in the summary of that particular article, it, you know, sort of reminds us that we need to think a little bit more critically and retain a little bit of a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to the emerging technologies. What sort of emerging technologies are you thinking about in that sense?
0: Right. Well, that is the very timely issue. And that's where a lot of my current research is focusing. So, you're absolutely right. That research and some and and other uh, looking backward research that I'm currently doing, what it shows is that yes, over the last 120 years, so since 1900, when virtually nobody had a car and virtually and there were no airplanes, to the year 2000, when automobile transportation saturated and reached its peak and air travel became common for people to take a weekend trip to someplace thousands of miles away, certainly uh, automobile travel increased, or our mobility, our mobility, the amount of travel that we engage in, the number of uh, person miles that people travel increased by an order of magnitude. And that provided some benefits, but it inc- also incurred huge costs. And so, for example, there's this great survey that I discovered, I feel like I was in. Archaeologists discovering something dusty. Uh, It's a study, a survey that was done of household expenditures in 1903. So we have good household expenditure data from the last three decades. But to go back to 1903, there's a survey that's called Workman's Family Spending. In 1903. Done by the U.S. Census. Now, currently, somewhere between the average household is spending between 15 and 20% of its household budget on vehicles, and then you can even increase that a little bit, taking into account uh, residential parking costs. So you could reasonably say the average household is spending about 20% of its budget on transportation. What do you think it was in 1903? It was too small to measure. It, there was no category for transportation. There was categories for food. There was categories for housing and clothing and and recreation and a bunch of other things. Nothing for transportation. A workman, certainly in 1900, there were trains and there were trolleys, but most working-class families would choose to live in a place where uh, you wouldn't even need to pay your train fare, you know, where they would live in the neighborhoods, where you would usually be able to get to your job by walking or bicycling.
1: So here's a question for you, Todd, since you, you may know this answer since you've looked back at some of this. I wonder how much a ride cost and, and you know right. if somebody well, did take a, a short ride.
0: I can answer that because almost universally at that time, riding a trolley cost a nickel. Got it. So at the time you know, a laborer was earning between $1 and $3 a day. So five cents, assuming, let's say, the middle, $2 a day, five cents, uh, two five-cent trips represented 5% of their budget. So even if you did commute by trolley, that still was only 5% of your household budget, where now households are spending, and especially the, the interesting thing is that the portion of household budget devoted to transportation goes up with poverty. So low-income households are spending more of their budget on transportation than high-income households, with a few exceptions. But I mean, if you, if you look at low-income households living in uh, transit-oriented neighborhoods, it's low. But if you look at the households, the low-income households that own a car, they are spending more than 20% of their budget on transportation. Okay, so here is the interesting thing. If you measure the travel speeds using what we call effective speed, so that is your, your mileage divided by the amount of time you spend traveling plus the amount of time you spend earning money for that transportation, so you look at the average worker who's uh, they've got uh, about their, their, their commute requires about an hour a day and they, or a little less, but let's say almost an hour a day. And they're spending 20 percent of their work day earning money for their to buy and maintain their car. They are maintaining about eight miles an hour. I can travel faster by bicycle. In other words, over the last century, we have increased our mobility by an order of magnitude. We've gone from the average person traveling, the average working class person traveling about three miles a day by walking, to the average working class working person traveling about 30 miles a day, almost entirely in their car. And yet, in order to do that, they have to devote more than an hour a day to earn money for that. And we've incurred very high traffic fatality costs. Their housing costs have gone up to pay for residential parking. The cost of other goods have increased in order to pay for the parking at destination. So you're, when you go up to that to a pub for that beer, maybe 20 sense of that five dollar beer is for the parking at the pub and everybody you know it's which is unfair and contradicts all of our other planning objectives anyway when you total this up it turns out yes we're mobile more mobile but it's unclear how much better off we are and i can we can say with a great deal of confidence that people who cannot or should not or prefer not to drive are worse off because we have much worse uh, walking and bicycling and public transit options. And even motorists bear an awful lot of those costs. And so especially low income motorists are probably worse off. So my conclusion based on what I believe is a pretty objective, comprehensive analysis of the benefits and costs of the emerging tech of the of the technologies that emerged in the last century, the last 120 years, suggests that we have we should be much more careful and make sure that we we maximize the value of mobility. So, in other words, during the last century, the last the 20th century was the period of automobile ascendancy. We went, that was when cars became the dominant form of transportation. And at the time, there was very little critical analysis of that toward the end. In the 1970s and 80s, there were these freeway revolts and a lot of pushback in some communities. But the basic principles, the basic idea, for example, that parking should be abundant and subsidized has has only been questioned very recently, thanks to our good friend Donald Schubert. And the assumption that streets should be designed almost entirely for the benefit of automobile travel uh, has only been pushed back with the complete streets movement that's come, that's less than a decade old. So the basic idea that the goal of planning, the planning goal is to maximize mobility, was well established, and now it's time to value transportation effectively. Efficiency and diversity. So, well, it,
1: it, it sounds like, if I can cut in here, Todd, it, it sounds like what you're saying is I don't get my rocket belt.
0: If you want a rocket belt, you can get your rocket belt, but I can pretty much guarantee that it is going to be expensive and dangerous, and it's not going to perform nearly as well as it does in the advertisements, and it's not going to be very pleasant. Your rocket, the first time you take your rocket belt, Belt trip, it might be the novelty might be great and you're going to really enjoy zooming around your above your, you know, above the roofs of houses. But the second time, uh, that is if you don't crash or vomit or whatever, but the second time is going to be a lot less, um, uh, the novelty will wear off. And by the fifth time, you're going to say no <laughs> i'm going to get on my bicycle and enjoy it well and that's bike. exactly
1: where i was bringing this back around to the active towns approved technology that's been around for the better part of 200 years or so and and in our new version of the bicycle is in fact the electric assist bike and how it's opening up the windows for so many people and as as well as extending the opportunity for active mobility for people who are getting into their 70s, 80s and 90s. And we're really seeing that play out, especially in the Netherlands and and parts of Germany where they have access to very, very safe infrastructure and they're able to go further distances as well as just keep their mobility up. And we're seeing that definitely as a, a very, very positive trend. So that's a technology that I'm pretty bullish on in terms of what has been happening and and the uptake, especially also when you consider the opportunity of electric assist with cargo bikes. And we're seeing many, many families maybe downsizing to one car and putting the kids into a Bockfeet's type of uh, a cargo bike or the the new version of it, the Urban Arrow. And so there's there's some really encouraging things that are happening there. Again, going back to a technology that's a tweak, an in, incremental improvement on a technology that's been around for a long time and is still one of the most efficient and enjoyable technologies that we have out there. Goes right back to the beginning of your career. Absolutely. What I
0: emphasize is that the value of diversity. So, if you were to say, if you, let's say, are a bicycle activist and you say bicycles are the answer, you're sure going to get pushback by somebody that will. And I hear this, you know, I, I can tell you from personal experience, somebody will figure out some trip that can't be made by bicycle. Oh, how could I strap my refrigerator or my kayak or whatever? on a bicycle, let me tell you how stupid it is to see bicycles as a a solution. Well, sure, there are plenty of trips that shouldn't be made by bicycle, but there are a lot more trips that are currently not being made by bicycle that reasonably could be. And like you say, as we diversify the types of bicycles that are out there to include cargo bikes and electric assisted bikes and three wheelers and recumbents and tandems and trailer bikes and all these different things, bikes with, with all kinds of cool features. Once we get all that, once that is a, oh, and rental bikes. So bike share, each of those play, can play a good role, a useful role in a diverse and efficient transportation system. Let me generalize this. It is perfectly reasonable for somebody to say, to point out a trip that should be made by automobile. Okay, so they say, oh, I'm going to shop at Costco, you know, a big box store, or I'm a carpenter and I need a vehicle that can carry all my, all my tools, or I'm a soccer coach or I'm a soccer parent and I need a vehicle that can carry three kids and all their gear. Okay, fine. Use that for, it would be inefficient to try and accomplish those purely by bicycle in most communities. There are certainly communities where you, your kids can get to the soccer pitch easily by without a car. But, but let's assume that there are some trips, but it is equally, here's what I want to emphasize. It is equally inefficient for a parent to have to drive a child to school or to a friend's house, or even to a soccer practice simply because their neighborhood doesn't have sidewalks and safe crosswalks, and or that walking and bicycling are stigmatized. My point is celebrate diversity. It's that an efficient and equitable transportation system must be diverse and respond to diverse user demands. So if anybody wants to bicycle or walk, that we provide the resources to make that convenient and fun, and that we're willing to spend at least as much uh, of road space and money on a walking or bicycling trip as we do to accommodate a car trip. And everybody would be better off if we took some of those resources that we devote to roads and parking and invest them to ensure that anybody who wants to walk or bicycle or use public transportation has that option.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a wonderful place to wrap this up because that really uh, puts a bow on it quite nicely. Todd, thank you so very much for uh, joining me on the Active Towns podcast.
0: Thank you very much, John, my pleasure.
1: Hey, thanks everyone for listening. I hope you found this conversation with Todd Littman to be informative and thought-provoking. I have found Todd to be so generous with his time and willingness to share his depth of knowledge. Be sure to check out all the resources and reports out on the Victoria Transport Policy Institute website, which you can access at vtpi.org. I have that link and many others out in our show notes. Before we go please don't hesitate to reach out. If you have any suggested topics or guests, it's always so wonderful to hear from y'all. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to subscribe and rate on the listening platform of your choice. And help us grow our audience by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's all for this episode of the Active Towns Podcast. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.